You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate the value of mercy. Mercy is a universally recognized characteristic that we find to be attractive, commendable, I would say even necessary to life. It is in short supply these days. With the advent of the cancel culture, we find ourselves in a time when mercy is in short supply. We find ourselves in a time when forgiveness is difficult to come by. In fact, quite the opposite. It seems that society is determined to inflict maximal suffering and misery for the smallest mistake. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Flourishing are those who exhibit mercy. Happy and joy-filled are the merciful. Jesus taught us that there is a flourishing in this life if we would be merciful. And not only that, but he promised in the days to come there would be a reception of mercy. Again, it's important to state Jesus is not saying this as a criteria by which you become his disciple. That's not how the Beatitudes work. Jesus does not give these Beatitudes as a to-do list. If you're successful in following these instructions, then you become my disciple. That's not how the Beatitudes should be understood. Rather, in the proper context, we understand Jesus is speaking first and foremost to his disciples, teaching them what it looks like now that they have put their faith in him. This is, if you like, a roadmap. These are the evidences that you are his disciple. If you put your faith in Christ, if you've confessed of your sins and turned away from them by God's grace, you've taken up your cross to follow after Christ, things start to change in your life. You start to see fruit by virtue of God's work in your heart, and Jesus is outlining what that fruit looks like. If you're truly his disciple, you will be one who is merciful. That's what Jesus is teaching here. It's important to say at the very outset, these are difficult teachings to apprehend. Particularly verse 7, as I've thought about mercy this week, on the horizontal level, mercy shown not between us and God or God towards us, but mercy amongst one another, it's a difficult teaching to apprehend. This is the shortest beatitude, handful of words in the original language. It's very short and concise and on one level easy to understand, but very difficult to appropriate to our lives. And I've received feedback over the weeks as we've been working through the beatitudes, the most common of which has been just how challenging these beatitudes are, how convicting they can be. And there's No shame in that. There's no need to apologize for that. They are challenging. They are convicting. It is right that as Christians, we use the Beatitudes to shine a light on our lives and to examine ourselves. Jesus says his disciples will be merciful. From the very outset, I would say if you examine your life today and find an absence of mercy, it may be Either you're not actually a disciple, you might show up to church and say the right things, but you're not actually a disciple, the good news being that the cross is available to you today to find mercy. Or it might be that you are a disciple, you just haven't cultivated in your life, a habit of picking up your cross and obeying Christ's word on a daily basis, you haven't cultivated 
that sense of discipleship. Your allegiance to Jesus has yet to go beyond a confession of your sins, a confession of faith in Him. You've much work to do in the way of obeying His Word. The good news is that today you may begin. And you begin by considering what Jesus meant when He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So my prayer is that today we would grow as a church in our acts of mercy, in our apprehension of the mercy that we've received, and in our anticipation of the mercy that will be ours when the kingdom comes. In order to understand this verse, I'd like to organize our thoughts under three headings, or more specifically, three questions. The first, who are the merciful? The second, why are they blessed? And finally, what mercy will they receive? There'll be our three headings today. Who are the merciful? Why are they blessed? And what mercy will they receive? Beginning with that question, who are the merciful? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Who are these people? And perhaps we need to start with the definition of mercy. It's important to distinguish mercy from grace. We'll often, I think, lump the two together as if they're mere synonyms, and they're not. Properly understood, we should think of grace as goodness bestowed in an unmerited way. We often say grace is unmerited favor, and that's a a good biblical definition for grace. It's some bestowal of kindness, of goodness, to the recipient who does not deserve it. We are all the recipients of God's goodness, and in that sense, He has been gracious to us. By contrast, mercy is the alleviation of some pain or suffering. It has not so much to do with the bestowal of some good as it focuses on the alleviation of some suffering and often, again, without merit, without the person, the recipient, deserving it. So you might think of a judge in a courtroom with a criminal in front of him. He's guilty, guilty of the crime of which he was accused, and now he stands ready for the verdict to be delivered, and rightly, misery and suffering and pain is, is due to him. Rightly, he should be sentenced to a long prison sentence. He should now receive the misery that is due to him because of his crime, and in that moment, the judge does away with his punishment doesn't give him his sentence. In that moment, we might say correctly, the judge has been merciful to him. He's taken away, alleviated some kind of suffering that was rightly due to him. He didn't deserve to have his sentence passed in the way that the judge did. That's mercy. Now, with that, we might note that the New Testament speaks of at least three different kinds of mercy. So we're just trying to define the term right now, and as we survey the New Testament, we see at least three different words that might be translated mercy. One we find, just by way of example, in Colossians chapter 3, and in verse 12, Paul speaks to the believers in Colossae and says, put on certain characteristics. And in that list that he gives them, he says, put on compassion, the word there could equally be translated mercy, and the word that the Apostle Paul uses speaks of a disposition of heart. Ensure that your hearts are compassionate towards others, says Paul. A different word for mercy is found just by way of example in Matthew chapter 9. In verse 36, there Jesus is said to have compassion on those around him. It's a different word, and it could equally also be translated mercy. We often see it translated with the word compassion. 
And again, it speaks primarily of a certain disposition. Jesus, in his heart, felt compassion towards those around him. In fact, the word there speaks of a a deep-seated compassion. In the very depths of our being, Jesus felt that compassion for those around him. A different word is used here in Matthew 5. A different word translated mercy. And the idea of the word used here is certainly first and foremost a disposition of the heart, but it would also include an expression with hands, feet, our very lives. The difference between the first two examples and the word Jesus uses here is that as Jesus speaks of the merciful, he is not expecting that we would merely be compassionate in our hearts towards others, but that it would be followed up by some kind of action. He expects that his disciples would be very active people. They would have in their hearts a deep-seated compassion, desire to help others to alleviate suffering and pain where they are able, and that they would act upon it. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, those who act in merciful ways. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, isn't it entirely possible for an unbeliever to demonstrate such behavior? Isn't it possible for someone who has no saving faith in Christ, who is not a disciple of the Lord Jesus, to do exactly that, namely be compassionate in their heart and act upon those feelings in such a way so as to really and genuinely alleviate pain and suffering in the lives of others? And the answer in one sense is yes. We could all think of examples. We could all look around us and see many, many people who have no faith in the Lord Jesus behaving in such a way so as to extend mercy to those around them. But it's important to note that their mercy is both ill-informed and incomplete. The mercy that we see exhibited by so many who have no saving faith in the Lord Jesus is not the mercy of which Jesus speaks of here. This mercy has a context. It's part of the Beatitudes. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's part of the Gospel of Matthew. It is a Christian mercy. You have to allow the context to determine the meaning. And here we understand that an unbeliever is incapable of this particular kind of mercy. Or, to put it another way, the unbeliever's mercy is both ill-informed and incomplete. What I mean by that is that when we see someone who does not have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus in some way act so as to alleviate suffering and misery in the life of others, generally they do not have in mind their eternal state. The acts of mercy that we see exhibited by unbelievers are normally towards an alleviation of physical suffering, but with no real sight of their eternal standing before the Lord. It's incomplete. It doesn't have in mind the eternal well-being of the one to whom they exhibit mercy. Additionally, it's ill-informed. It's ill-informed because there is no way in which the unbeliever can exhibit mercy based upon the mercy they themselves have seen in the gospel. They sit outside of the truths of the gospel. They have not put their faith in Christ. And so the impetus for their mercy is not and cannot be the mercy that is demonstrated on the cross. Who knows where it comes from? It really is an act of God's grace that we should be thankful for, but it certainly isn't driven by the mercy that we see central to the gospel. And here's where we start to understand what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the merciful. The merciful that Jesus has in mind here 
are those who first and foremost are recipients of mercy. The merciful that we see here are those who are driven by an acknowledgement of the mercy they have received at the cross. Jesus makes this plain later on in this very gospel. In Matthew chapter 18, as you know, he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. And there we read of a servant who stands before his master and owes a great debt. He owes a great debt that he could never pay. And so a, a punishment is due him, some pain and misery is due him, but he pleads to his master to be forgiven. And as you know, the master forgives him. The master is merciful toward him. That servant then leaves the room and bumps into a fellow servant. Jesus tells how the fellow servant owed a much smaller amount to the first servant. A much smaller amount. And he also in turn was unable to pay. And so the, the original servant was not merciful to him. The original servant failed to show the same mercy that he had been shown. And Jesus teaches that parable so as to instruct us what our life should look like. We have received great mercy. A great mercy at the cross. We deserve unending torment and suffering because of our sin. And yet God in his mercy has taken that suffering away from us. We, disciples of the Lord Jesus, are recipients of mercy. And that should be the impetus in our lives to be merciful. That should be the driving force in our lives that causes us to act in mercy. Now again, the Beatitudes can be very challenging. If you think just for a minute about the characteristic nature of your behavior amongst others, it might be that you're sat here this morning saying, if I'm honest, people don't know me to be merciful. If others were invited to write a short bio about me, a short description of who I am amongst the community, they would not be prompted to write, he is merciful. It might be that this morning you recognize that you are not one characterized by acts of mercy, and it might be that that's because you haven't received the mercy of the gospel. There's a, an absence in your life, there's an absence of that impetus of that desire, of that drive to be merciful to others. Why? Because you have not received mercy. There is no great driving force in your life of mercy from the Father towards you that prompts you to be merciful in turn. You see how the Beatitudes really expose the spiritual state of a man. It might be that you're not a disciple and that explains the absence of mercy in your life. But the wonderful news is the mercy of the cross is available to all who would confess their sin and put their faith in Christ. This morning, you may come to Jesus, acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you deserve a great punishment, and cast yourself upon Him. And in so doing, you are the recipient of mercy. The second that you would be willing to put your faith in Christ, you become the recipient of the mercy that the Father has put on display at the cross. And then as you meditate upon that great mercy for the rest of your life, there will be an emergence of fruit, a development of fruit in your life, not least of which includes a demonstration of mercy towards others. It might be that you are genuinely a disciple of Christ, and yet, if you're honest, still you see an absence of mercy, and I would say simply, you haven't exercised that discipleship. 
You've yet to start putting one foot in front of the other as it relates to Jesus' teaching. You're not used to yet treading out paths of mercy towards others. And today is the day when you take that first step. I want to be very clear on what it looks like to cultivate that pattern of discipleship in your life. The most common mistake that believers make when they feel challenged by some hard teaching of Christ or any of the apostles in the New Testament is to run with the utmost urgency to obey, and they do so in their own strength. They forget the gospel, as it were, as they seek to obey. They forget the fact that it is the same grace by which you are saved that carries you in obedience. In order to be those who are genuinely merciful as a characteristic, as a normative behavior in your life to demonstrate mercy towards others, you first and foremost need to return to the truths of your salvation. You go back to the cross. You go back to the mercy that you received when you put your faith in Christ. You don't graduate beyond that mercy, but you return to it. So just consider again this morning of how great a mercy you have been shown. Your sins are far, far greater than you have ever considered. Your sins are far more numerous than you are able to take in. In thought and in word and in deed. You have sinned continuously against your Creator. And your sins are not only more numerous than you can fathom, but they are far more grievous than you think. There is no such thing as a small sin against a holy God. Because every sin that you have ever committed is against, ultimately, the One who created you. It is an infinitely grievous sin. Because ultimately it is a sin against Him. The smallest of sins from your perspective is worthy of eternal punishment. All too often I hear Christians speak as if I haven't really done anything that's that egregious. I haven't really lived all that bad a life. My sins are small in the grand scheme of things. That is not true because every sin is against an infinitely holy God. And because every single sin ultimately is against Him, every sin is infinitely grievous. Every sin is worthy of eternal punishment. If you had only ever committed one sin in your entire life, not true for any of us, but if you had only ever committed one sin, and from a human perspective, it was the smallest of small sins. Still, it would be entirely just of God to sentence you to an eternity in hell. Because that one sin is an infinite, infinite offense against the Holy God. And at the cross, God wipes the slate clean. He takes away every sin that you have ever committed. He makes a payment for every sin that you have ever committed. Not only the sins that you are able to bring to mind. Not only the sins that you are able to confess to Him. But far more than that, every sin you have ever committed. Every inclination of your heart that was set against Him that didn't honor Him, He wipes that slate clean. At the cross, God makes a payment for your sins, past, present, and future. He makes a payment for all of your sins such that the slate will ever be kept clean. Now the only record that stands by you is forgiven, not guilty. And in so doing, having made that payment by the death of His Son, God has expressed towards you infinite mercy. He has taken away forever 
the misery and the pain that was rightly due to you because of your sin. So that, as we have already prayed today, when Christ returns and gathers his people unto himself, we need not fear. That does not need to be a day wherein we are shaking and nervous and uncertain of what will happen. We can look forward to that day with great anticipation and even pray, Lord Jesus, come. Because I know in that day there will be great celebration and great joy. There will be no pain or suffering because of the mercy that has been expressed at the cross. And not only that, but the mercy that we have received goes beyond. It is true that God has taken away the punishment that was due us so that when we step into the kingdom and into the new heavens and the new earth, we will know nothing of the torment that is rightly due us because of our sin. Additionally, there is a mercy that is experienced each and every day in so much as God has brought us into a relationship with Him So that by some measure, according to his grace, we now walk out a path of obedience. So just as we have thought many times in the previous weeks that the way of the transgressor is hard, now, by God's grace, to some measure, we are no longer walking that way. We are not walking out the way of the transgressor. That means we don't feel the misery in the here and now that comes with living a life of sin. And therein again, we note God's mercy. It is God's mercy that we do not feel the suffering that comes with our sin in the present. You look around you and see a broken world. You see a sinful, lost people who choose to walk in a path of disobedience to God's word. And they suffer, they suffer continuously for their choices. They suffer because of their sinful, deliberate acts of rebellion. And God's mercy comes to you this day by guiding you on a path of obedience. So that each and every day you experience, by His grace, a pleasant way. That is God's mercy towards you. That is His mercy towards you now. And there is great mercy that is coming when Christ returns. Now, as Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, he's speaking to you. He's speaking to everyone here that would raise their hand and say, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He's labeling you as merciful. So you see the implied imperative, be merciful. If you follow me, if you put your faith in me, follow me by being merciful. And the way to exercise that pattern of discipleship is first and foremost to return to the cross of Christ. It is first and foremost above any action to meditate afresh on the mercy that you have received through the death of Christ. Pray to God each and every day, Father, cause me to wonder afresh at the mercy that is found at the cross. Enliven my heart afresh this morning to see the mercy that I have received through Christ. And as you meditate upon that and as God is faithful to answer your prayers and awaken your heart afresh each morning to the mercy that is found at the cross, then take a step in obedience. Be merciful. Now, just very practically, what does that look like? What does that mean? God, in His wisdom, has given you opportunity in many different ways to alleviate the pain and the suffering of others. God, in His wisdom, has not left you without opportunity to be merciful. I would say there are probably more opportunities than perhaps you realize surrounding you right now to be merciful. There are many 
many opportunities around each and every one of us to show ourselves merciful in some way, very practically, to alleviate the pain and suffering that we see around us. As I was encouraging you last week, be involved in the lives of those around you this morning. Do not be content merely to show up in a very passive sense on a Sunday morning and that be the sum total of your involvement in the life of this church. Be involved with all that this church is doing Sunday morning and Sunday evening and throughout the week. And as you do so, you will get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we are transparent with one another, you will see opportunity to be merciful. Within this body, God will present to you opportunities to alleviate the pain and the suffering of others. Additionally, God has already given us opportunity to be merciful to those who are outside of the church. There are ministries that this church partakes in on a regular basis that very much are mercy ministries. There is, and we insist upon it, a clear articulation of the gospel within these ministries. But at the same time, there is a practical alleviation of suffering. Be involved in those ministries. Give of your time and your energy to say, I want to show myself as one who is merciful. I have returned to the mercy that I've seen at the cross. I have meditated upon it and now there is a desire in my heart to be merciful. Now be merciful. And then beyond those ministries, I would just encourage you as you go about your daily life, you know the circumstances and the situations in which the Lord has placed you on a regular basis. Look for opportunities to be a vessel of mercy. To express mercy towards others because you're a disciple of Christ and you're one who has received a great mercy. That's who the merciful are. Why are they blessed? Blessed are the merciful, says Jesus. Now remember, as we work through these Beatitudes, there is a twofold blessing to every single one of them. Jesus makes a promise with every Beatitude, He orients our hearts towards the coming kingdom. He makes a promise that is in the future. They shall receive mercy in this case, and we'll think about that in just a few minutes. But there's a twofold blessing, and it's understood by coming to terms with that first word, blessed. As we've discussed, that word means we flourish now. We are happy now. We're joyful now. There's a future promise, but we're happy, joyful, flourishing even now. So with every beatitude, there's a twofold blessing, a now and a not yet, and it is our responsibility to think through with each of these Wherein is the blessing to be found now? Why does Jesus say flourishing are the merciful? Notice he doesn't give an answer. He doesn't give a fully fledged theological explanation. He just simply states you'll flourish right now if you're merciful. We have to construct an argument theologically by what we know to be true in Scripture. And so I've meditated long and hard this week. Why? Would Jesus say that right now, today, you may flourish, be full of joy, be happy if you're merciful? Apart from the future-oriented blessing that is to come, why now? I believe, at least in part, it is because when we are vessels of mercy, we align ourselves very closely with the will of God in the gospel, we align ourselves very closely with the action of God when He saved us. Now, I want to be very careful 
And by no means am I saying that when we demonstrate mercy towards others, in some small way alleviate suffering and pain in the lives of those around us, by no means is that synonymous with the gospel. This has been the great confusion in so-called mercy ministries over many years now. Many mercy ministries have equated their actions, their alleviation of earthly suffering with the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a message that must be clearly communicated and is the only means by which someone may be saved. The acts of mercy are important. They're valuable. They put on display the love of God, but they are not synonymous with the gospel. Yet... In some way, as we embark upon acts of mercy, we align ourselves with the very will of God towards us in salvation. Consider with me. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, God is not poor in spirit. He's not spiritually lacking. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, God is not mourning his sin. He has none. When Jesus says blessed are the meek, certainly Jesus is meek, but we are indirectly benefiting from his meekness as he was willing to go to the cross and make a payment. When Jesus says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, again, God is not hungering for righteousness. He is righteous. But when Jesus says blessed are the merciful, we understand that this is exactly how God has acted towards us. There is a more direct alignment between God's act towards us and our actions towards others with this beatitude. As we are merciful to others, as God gives us opportunity, as he has put this desire within our hearts, we find ourselves walking ever so closely with our Father in heaven who has been merciful towards us. And surely then, as we are merciful, we enjoy a particular and a special communion with the Father. As we are willing to act mercifully towards others, we surely grow in our love and our appreciation of the mercy that we have received from God through the gospel. And I would say even more than that, as we enjoy that special communion with the Father, so also our hearts will enlarge towards the one to whom we are showing mercy. Our hearts can only ever grow in love towards the one who, towards whom we are merciful. And so you see by embarking upon acts of mercy, oh, what a happy and wonderful state we put ourselves in. What a position of privilege and of blessing and of the utmost joy we position ourselves in when we are willing to be vessels of mercy. There was a study conducted some years ago now that speaks to this very idea. A historian sought to try and define the evangelical. It was a landmark study. It has now become very formative in how the world perceives evangelical Christians. The question that the historian sought to answer is what defines an evangelical, and his conclusions were fourfold. He said, it strikes me that the evangelicals are preoccupied, obsessed with four things, the cross, the Bible, conversion, and what he called activism. And I would agree, he's entirely right, and in many ways we can be glad of those conclusions. It's entirely right that evangelicals should show themselves as those that are obsessed with the cross, consumed with the Bible, very concerned about the doctrine of conversion, and who are very active. But as I've thought about that definition, I think perhaps we've reached a crisis point in the history of evangelicalism. 
a very, very tenuous point in our history because concerning that last mark of the evangelical, we find ourselves in a time when society is very at home with living increasingly distanced lives, less and less defined by relationship, ever more defined by transactions, ever less in community with one another. In many ways, facilitated by the advances we've seen in technology, we find that society is now living ever more distant from one another. And so that presents a crisis for the Christian church, for the evangelicals. It threatens to erode our Christian activity. If we're not on guard, it may well be that the Christian church becomes one that is no longer merciful, but is entirely content to live our lives, our brother and sister relationships at a distance, expressing love from afar, showing what we perceive to be acts of mercy without being present in one another's lives. And so we need to think carefully about Jesus' teaching that the disciples, his disciples, are merciful. We need to return to the utmost position of joy and privilege that it is to be a vessel of mercy. And we need to do so ever more so that we run contrary to the trends of society today. That we would not allow the church to be defined by distanced relationships operating from afar and no longer gathering in the flesh. We need to be in the flesh, in person, face to face, looking one another in the eye and being vessels of mercy to one another in person. That is how we are merciful. We cannot tolerate living our lives distanced from one another as we see so much the case in society. In large measure, because when we do, we step out of that position of the utmost blessing. We remove ourselves from that position of privilege, of joy, of communion with God, and of love towards one another. Blessed are the merciful, because they're aligning their lives with the very actions of God in salvation. Now, with that being said, we have another blessing a future-oriented one, and this brings us to our third question, what mercy will they receive? Blessed are the merciful, here and now, joyful, flourishing. Additionally, Jesus says, they will in the future receive mercy. It's very important, especially with this beatitude, to labor again Jesus is not teaching any sense of works-based salvation. It would be very easy to interpret this verse in that way. In part because this beatitude, more forcefully than any others, demonstrates this kind of reciprocity. The same word is used for both the characteristic of the disciple and the reward they will receive. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So it would be very easy to read this beatitude as if Jesus was saying, if you are merciful, then you'll receive the blessing that pertains to the coming of the kingdom. Again, context is key. Jesus never teaches that our works are what gets us into heaven. These are evidences of being a disciple. Or, if we start to pick apart the mercy that we shall receive, we are well reminded that the Bible speaks of salvation in a multifaceted sense. The Bible will speak about the fact that we have been saved as a past act referring to our justification before God. At the same time, we can find examples in the Bible that speaks about the fact that we are being saved. 
speaking there about our ongoing sanctification and many texts that speak about the fact that one day we will be saved. Speaking about the doctrine of glorification. So when Jesus says they shall receive mercy, he's talking about that final consummation of the gospel in our lives. He is not saying in any way that you haven't received mercy already. At the cross, at the point of your justification, you have received a great mercy. Your punishment that is due you because of your sin has been taken away. You will never face the wrath of God. And here, without without going against that teaching, Jesus is saying there is a day when your mercy, that mercy that is inherent to the gospel, will be fully realized. Because you understand, as much as God has taken away the punishment that is due our sin, we still do feel the effects of sin. There is a sense in which we haven't fully experienced that alleviation of misery and suffering. It's still there in our lives to some degree. We choose to disobey continuously in our Christian lives and we bring suffering on ourselves And then simply by existing in a sin-cursed world, we experience the suffering that comes from the reality of sin. There is a sense in which we have not fully realized this mercy, and Jesus is saying, there's a day coming when the mercy that emanates from the cross of Christ will be consummated in your life. Again, think upon Isaiah 61. Think upon what is not said. There is no mention in Isaiah 61 of suffering. There is no mention in the kingdom of pain. There are none in the kingdom who experience even the slightest amount of misery. In the kingdom there are no tears. In the kingdom there is no grieving. There is no loss in the kingdom. There is no hurt in the kingdom. All that we read about is unending joy. A prospering, a flourishing, a happiness that is never ending when the kingdom comes. And so we see that when Jesus promises that we shall receive mercy, he's speaking about a future-oriented consummation of gospel mercy. As you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, there is a mercy to be found at the cross that will be fully realized when the kingdom comes. And so we as a church, must set our minds upon these realities. May we be fully, fully appreciative and grateful of the mercy that has been given to us at the cross. May we be mindful as a congregation to return to the mercy of the gospel as a daily habit, as a daily practice. May we be faithful to be vessels of mercy. With that ground, may it give rise in our lives to merciful acts. And may we wait with great anticipation for that day when the mercy of the kingdom will be fully realized in our lives so as to usher in unending joy and absence of suffering and a full realization of our salvation pray with me now to close our father we give you thanks for the mercy of the cross at the cross we see amazing mercy as you put upon christ the suffering that we deserve and so as a result We will never, ever face your wrath. We will not face the suffering that we deserve 
because of our sin. In an eternal way, you have alleviated our pain and our misery through the death of your Son, and for that we give you thanks. Father, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts this great mercy to the end that we would, in like manner, be merciful. May we show ourselves to be the disciples of Christ through acts of mercy. As you give us opportunity, would you also give us desire to alleviate in practical ways the suffering and the misery of those around us? Fueled by the mercy of the gospel, I pray, Father, that you would cause this church to serve one another in acts of mercy. Cause us to labor on behalf of one another. Wherever we're able to alleviate one another's burdens. Father, cause us to be quick to serve in ministries of mercy. Ministries of mercy that go beyond this church. To so many in our community that are suffering the effects of sin in this world. May we be found faithful to be vessels of mercy to those. And Father, even as we think about the circumstances of our daily lives, may we be faithful to be merciful. Understanding that as we are merciful, oh, what a happy and a privileged position we will find ourselves to be in. Walking so closely with our Heavenly Father as recipients of your mercy, so then we bestow mercy on others. What a joyful position of communion with you, of love towards those around us. May we find the blessing of which Jesus speaks when he says, blessed are the merciful. And I pray that you would orient our hearts towards the coming kingdom. In all of this, help us to be mindful, Father, that this life is not the end, but there is a kingdom that is coming. And on that day, there will be a consummation of gospel mercy a full realization of the mercy that is found at the cross. No more suffering, no more pain, only joy upon unending joy as we fellowship with one another and with Christ for all eternity. Father, instruct our hearts this morning towards this end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.